The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, November the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we want to step a bit off the day-to-day circuit of Irish politics to consider an issue which has increasingly become subject of debate in recent years, but which I think it is fair to say many people still think of as a a very long-term question. And that question relates to the holding of a referendum in Northern Ireland uh, to leave the United Kingdom and to join a united Ireland. The, The process by which such a referendum might be called is set out in the Belfast Agreement of 1998, but many questions remain about what that whole process might entail, if it actually happens. Uh, This week sees the publication of a report from the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the Island of Ireland, which is made up of academic specialists from politics, law, history and sociology, coming from Belfast and Dublin and London and from Philadelphia. It lays out a number of scenarios and options which might be pursued in the event of a referendum being called. And to discuss this, I'm joined by one of the report's authors, Dr. Etain Tanham, who is Associate Professor of International Peace studies at Trinity College Dublin, and also by Mick Fealty of the Slugger O'Toole political website, and by our own Pat Leahy. You're all very welcome. Etain, can I go to you first? What is the background under which this paper was uh, was written and produced over the last few months? The background really was led by the chair, Alan Renwick, in University College London. Um, he has worked on referendums, he and his team, in various situations um, from about 2016 onwards. And I suppose fundamentally the background was Brexit, really, in in a broad sense, because um, there were two things. One was that with Brexit, we know, as you've said, that the issue of unification has been talked about more. And of course, the issue of Scottish independence uh, became even stronger as well. So from a British politics perspective in London, that was one issue. And the second issue was a, a perception among everyone, whether they voted to uh, support Brexit or not, that the whole referendum process and what's happened has not been managed well. So it's a very, I suppose, academic project in that sense. It was looking at, from a politics and law perspective, how do we do referendums well? So I suppose we should stress in that that the authors had no uh, views about unification they don't support unification or have have a view about it. We've no collective view in the team about it. We actually don't know what our views are, really, because that wasn't what the focus was. It was this is being talked about. Um, we do not want to use Oren Doyle. Um, recently was talking with Brendan O'Leary, both in the report, um, both report authors. But we don't want to paraphrase, well, to quote Tony Blair uh, in the past about the Good Friday Agreement. We don't want the train to run from the station or whatever the phrase is without any planning because it would be chaotic. So it's not, in fact, the report, uh, Alan said it right from the start and really it's not that they have a view on unification. When we were doing the report and looking at the survey material, which particularly John Gary in Queens was responsible for that area and Brendan and a number of us on the team, it was very clear that it's not clear there's support for unification. So nobody thinks it's imminent. But events can happen and um, things can change quickly and it would be seen as disastrous. Um, So that's the background. It it was academic and it was also pragmatic, having looked at what happened with Brexit. 
that nobody wants to be overcome by instability and illegitimacy of the pro- of the process. And we'll come in a, in, a, in a little while to how you do kind of guarantee legitimacy in a process of this sort. And a, a, a lot of talk, I think, about planning, which is interesting. Um, given that we are in this particular moment, as you say, Brexit did accelerate debate around this subject over the over the last couple of years in particular. But the report does make clear that the, 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 the authors, or the majority of the authors anyway, as you say, don't think that a referendum is imminent. Although, you know, there are political actors in this debate, Sinn Féin primarily, who are pushing for such a thing. But you don't see it as, as being imminent within, what, the next five years, the next electoral cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is nobody, the report's findings are that a, a referendum isn't imminent. So it isn't even that, it, to my knowledge, and we haven't discussed it, but I think that really wasn't disputed at all. So that the, the team report is that it's not imminent. We're very careful not to put a figure on it. Um, I mean, as you know, Michal Martin has said there won't be an, a referendum in five years, but also it's very important to stress that this decision is not the Irish government's decision. It's the Secretary of State's decision. Um, but, you know, it's in terms of who's lobbying or who's asking for this, um, the Irish government says it's not, that wouldn't see it as stable. It would take several years is really, I mean, that, that's, I know that's very vague, but if you look at the report, um, the executive summary, the report itself, um, Paul Gillespie and myself have a have a, an op-ed in the Irish Times uh, today. Thank you very much, <laughs> Irish Times. Um, but if you look at that, um, the, the degree of planning, the degree of issues around this are so vast. And, and there are all these different configurations. I mean, I, I could summarise them very briefly as being, if there was a referendum, do you have a model of the Irish state which people can vote on or do you do that later um, timing about transfers of sovereignty. So it is a long, drawn-out process, um, but we don't put a figure on it. But really, I, I would think from reading the report, some variations would take less time than others, but there's no variation that would be quick. So I would say several years. Mick, can I ask you, is this a good time to start having this debate and what do you make of the contents of the report? I think the report does a very useful piece of work in the sense that it, it actually... Um, looks at the practical issues and it's interesting brexit there's two there's two things i think with brexit here one obviously the instability that it created afterwards is part of the inspiration for the project getting uh getting going but also it informs the the, the project in terms of how it lays out deproblematizing that particular issue and in doing that i think it also makes it really clear that some of the casual way in which the referendum has been talked about in the public discourse, as you rightly say, Hugh, a lot of that's been part of uh, Sinn Féin's own central core issue for much of the last 20 years since it demilitarised and went into an exclusively uh, political space. I think that what the report lays out is just how difficult that's going to be. You know, and Etan has really talked there about, um, you know, some of the imponderables around this, you know, what does a United Ireland actually look like? Because it will have to look like something certain and something definite, not this whole Brexit. Well, Brexit, we're going to have our sovereignty back and we're going to have this and we're going to have all of that. And we've seen just what a, uh, what a disaster it's been really for British-Irish relations and what a disaster it's been for, you know, the Good Friday Agreement. Let's not forget that Strand, one of the Good Friday Agreement, is the institutions in Stormont. And we've lost those for a big chunk of the, not this year, but certainly the previous three years. 
Um, so that, by any analysis, I think, has been destabilizing. And understanding that and trying to put some stabilization in is uh, is really clear. I think um, there are two key um, parts of the report that I would look at. There's the issue of what I would call, I would loosely characterize, probably slightly unfairly, is the diary. Um what does Northern Ireland come with? You know, because as the report point, points out, a United Ireland would have a uh, a much smaller population to bear the costs of the policies and programmes supported by the current subvention. That's a non-trivial issue that would have to be hammered out not before, not after the referendum, but before the referendum takes place. And I think there are, um, there are considerations too about just who is going to be consulted on this final shape. So I think, I think it, broadly speaking, I would welcome it because it has concretized something that has been living in the abstract for a long time. And the problem with abstractions is everybody gets to believe what it is they want to believe about you know this as uh, as an option. So I think that's I think that's a good piece of work. I definitely welcome it. Um, the report is very long and very thorough, uh, and. The executive uh, summary is available on its own, and certainly anybody who wants a quick read into this, uh, I think it's a good piece of work. Uh, and I agree with that. I recommend everybody to have a have a read of the of the executive summary, which 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 doesn't take much time at all. But Pat, when I think about referendums in general, uh, and this one in particular, they do often run into the kind of problems that Mick mentioned that happened with the Brexit referendum. This sort of you know, vague fog about what happens on the other side if a decision goes the other way. We have more experience than most countries here in the in this state with referendums because of the nature of our of our constitution and it demands them in a in a broader range of circumstances than uh, than is perhaps the case in 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 a lot of other countries. But they are always a messy kind of politics. I suppose all politics is messy, isn't they? Isn't it? But they're particularly messy when they go as deep to the nature of a state and sovereignty as this one. I just wonder. And I'll come back to Attain on this in a sec. How realistic it is to really paint a detailed picture of what a united Ireland would look like on the other side of a of a yes referendum. Yeah, a couple of things to unpack there. Uh, I suppose, Hugh. First of all, I think it's important to note that as um, as the report spells out, there will have to be referendums north and south. This is not just a matter of. Uh, a referendum on unity taking place in Northern Ireland. The constitution of the Republic will have to be changed as well. And that requires a, um, uh, and that obviously requires a, a referendum here. And if you, if you take it that, uh, and while obviously, you know, you're looking forward to, you know, a post-Brexit landscape, possible Scottish independence, the breakup of the United Kingdom. These are possibilities over the next, uh, uh, you know, o- o- over the relatively short term in, uh, in, 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 in the UK. Um, uh, you know, you, you see that there is, while there is not currently a situation where the British Secretary of State could reasonably conclude that a referendum could pass, that in the north, that position could change. But if you accept, as um, as the agreement says, that the British Secretary of State will only make that judgment when it is likely that a referendum will pass in the north now, you know, absent any ca- campaign, uh, you, you can't say what the likely outcome there is. But certainly a referendum in the north will only be uh, called when 
you know, when it is either likely uh, or, or, or it is possible that it would pa- that it would pass. The referendum in the south is perhaps you know more more of an unknown quantity. But what do we know about referendums in uh, uh, in in the south in the past? If you take a couple of uh, a couple of examples, the abortion referendum. Uh, that we had a couple of years ago, the divorce referendum that we had back in 1995. Both of those were on subjects that had previously been the subject of referendums and had previously failed. So if you are a government looking for a yes vote, you take the example of both those referendums, you could take the marriage equality referendum as well, and you spell out in advance in very concrete terms what a yes vote will mean. Because a no vote is, uh, people know what they're getting with the no vote, it is the status quo ante. But if you're going to, if you're pushing for a yes vote and you want a yes vote uh, in a referendum, you have got to explain to people in some reliable detail what that yes vote will mean. And that is, I suppose, the great service of this um, report that Etain and her colleagues have put together is that they spell out the need to do some thinking about, uh, about this and to work out in advance what uh, uh, you know? What what people would be voting for, both in the north and uh, and in the south, and uh, you know, I think at the moment the uh, the 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 approach by the government in uh, in Dublin, and you know, we we obviously see the shared island project of Mihal Martin, which is in some ways maybe. A way of not addressing this, or perhaps a precursor to addressing this, depending on how you uh, interpret it. But there is no serious planning and thinking going on about what uh, a shift in the a shift in the political landscape in the broader United Kingdom would mean. And I suspect that that won't be tenable for all that much longer. Whatever view the government takes on the desirability or otherwise, or the timescale are, uh, are otherwise, um, you've got to think that, uh, that this issue will become an issue for government and politics increasingly over the next decade. The issue of the sequencing of uh, referendums north and south attain seems to me to be to be very important with within this. I mean, it's obvious, um, regardless of anything else, regardless almost of what of what's in the Belfast Agreement, that if there were to be United Ireland, the nineteen thirty seven Constitution would require probably the most drastic revision in its history. If if it were not to be replaced completely, which might might even might even be the case, so of course a referendum would be required in the south, but. Do referendums happen simultaneously and how important is it that they happen within, you know, a very short space of time between each other? Is there a potential for for instability if there's a gap between the two of them? Can they happen instantaneously? Lots of questions. Yeah, and that was discussed a lot in the group, particularly between the lawyers. So I mentioned my colleagues, um, David Kenny and Oren Doyle, but Chris McCrudden is another lawyer from Queen's that they that was kind of and we all got involved really in that. Um, But concurrence does not mean simultaneous. Um, but it does mean that that there has to be, I should get the exact definition, but there can't be a long gap. It has to be roughly similar. And also the big issue is the questions because British uh, referendums, and they don't have as much experience as us, have posed the questions differently from us and all these issues around that. So there needs to be roughly sort of similar 
contexts and roughly a similar time is my very layperson's unlegal <laughs> understanding of it, but it doesn't have to be simultaneous. And I think what you've touched upon, though, is if there was too much of a delay, too long a delay, that then cuts into the criteria that are identified as necessary for effective referendums, so particularly stability. Um, so let's say Northern Ireland voted for unification and there was a long gap that would be destabilising where you have that majority in Northern Ireland if down here wasn't having the referendum. Mm. So, you know, in effect, we would expect it to be relatively close in time and as close as possible in context. And I just wanted to add, because um, actually there's a Twitter comment about this last night, um, but Pat was saying about if you vote um, against unification, you know what you're getting. But we did build into this also any research, and there hasn't been much done, on other um, ways of reforming the union. So, for example, if there was a majority in favour of um, remaining in the union, it could there could be, as there would be possibly about a referendum on unification, alternative models of the union set forward, uh, ways of reforming it. So um, we didn't, that wasn't our brief as such, I suppose, because we were just looking at the conduct of referendums. But Peter Robinson obviously is beginning in Northern Ireland to, to look at this more closely, I assume, with his proposed think tank. So just to say that it's not necessarily the status quo um, that they would be voting for. Well, indeed, and in the in the Scottish independence referendum, which in some ways, you know, it's a referendum in the same jurisdiction as the Northern Ireland one would take place um, under the same laws, and it's it, it was also a referendum on a constituent part of the United Kingdom leaving. David Cameron did make certain commitments uh, to changes in the relationship between between London and, and Edinburgh in advance of that referendum. So there's these things can happen at the political level as well. Yeah, I know there. I says just to say that I says they're more trivial. I know what Pat's getting at in terms of status quo. It's it's constitutional status quo, really. So, Mick, I want to get to the the, the the what seems to be to be one of the nubs of the of the matter here, which is the the report lays out various routes and options for for getting to a what might might be regarded as the best way to hold a referendum. But but key to them, it seems to me, is painting this picture which Pat talks about about what a unified Ireland would look like in the case of a in the case of a yes vote. But there are, as we know very well, there are a number of very divergent political actors uh, on the landscape, ranging from Sinn Féin on one side to various uh, shades of constitutional nationalism to the growing centre ground, which doesn't identify itself as either nationalist or unionist within Northern Ireland, to various shades of unionism, and of course to the United Kingdom itself and wh- whoever happens to be in government in the United Kingdom. Um there have been various instances down the years, historical instances of Irish nationalism mounting projects or debates or um, symposia, uh, forums of one sort or another to, to, to look at these questions. And there's an equally long history of unionists in particular not engaging with them because they see them as, uh, in the words of Ian Paisley, come into my parlour, said the spider to the fly. Um, <laughs> is the same thing not likely to happen with this so that we will have a vision of a new Ireland crafted by one side of the argument? Yeah, well, you know, you say that and New Ireland Forum, Garrett Fitzgerald's New Ireland Forum is one of those things that come to mind. But it's worth remembering that the New Ireland Forum did actually have some pretty useful effects. The Anglo-Irish Agreement was really followed through uh, just two or three years after that. And that was about laying down the intellectual space for something to happen. So I think there's always use around deliberation uh, John Robb, Senator John Robb, was kind of uh, was someone from a unionist background who certainly played a, po- a prominent role 
in and around that time through the Shannon. Um, and I, I think deliberation is really, really key here. Um, Pat very usefully, I think, referred back to um, the successful referendums, the divorce re- referendum, not the disastrous one of 1986, where the... Um, the wind was so free around all of that, the polling seemed to suggest it was going to go through until the encyclical from the bishops the Sunday before, actually the wind veered quite drastically the the next way around. And I think that's a useful analogy to think about in terms of just how uh, problematic this referendum is going to be because um, although the referendums can be sequential, the key one's going to be in the north. If the north says no, there won't be one in the south. Uh, at all. Um, and so how do you engage a group of people in the North who really aren't even interested in answering this question? We saw with the border poll in 1973, which gets a mention in the report, that the vast majority of nationalists just didn't even take part because they knew it was going to be a foregone conclusion. So um, and if we look at the successes of the later divorce referendum, the one on marriage equality, and the latest one on um, on, on abortion, the the quality of the deliberation process is really what is uh, behind that their, those successes, very broad successes right through uh, rural Ireland. Um, so I think that the, the problem with the North is if you look at the surveys, not the polling, the polling is often conditioned through the lens of a subsidiary question based on the idea that we don't know what Brexit looks like. And when we don't know what Brexit looks like, could be whatever your hopes or fears uh, suggest that is, uh, um, there's, there's a, some, a substantial group of people, something like 30%, much more than the people who vote for Alliance Greens and any of the other unaligned parties who are simply not interested in this constitutional question. And if you can't make some headway into that space, never mind the unionists who are absolutely still committed not to giving, then I think I think Micheál Martin's approach, taking a, a non-threatening approach to a shared island, is really part of building that deliberative space so that you can begin to figure out what is it those people might be interested in. You know, things like speeding up the speed, you know, the journey time on the enterprise service between Belfast and Dublin, you know, by cutting through Phoenix Park and taking it out of the suburban Dublin line and into um, Houston Station, where you can link to Galway and, and to Cork and onwards. Those are things that will bring the lives of people north and south a lot closer, bring the economy a lot closer. And I I think these are things that are really well worth talking about so that when we do get to the referendum, we're talking not just about the the smash and grab of 50% plus one, but actually thinking about, well, maybe 60 or 65% of people might go for this because we all feel a lot more comfortable together and we feel a lot closer because of the, 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 the preliminary work, which, by the way, could take 20, 30, 40 years before we get to that point. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't denigrate the work that's been done in the report. The referendum is part of the constitutional framework, which was agreed in 1998, and this really just helps put some bones on that. Pat, that kind of process which Mick is talking about, you know, 
changes on the ground. In a way, he's talking, what he's talking about is an acceleration or a continuation of a process, which we've all experienced in our lives. I know I have over the last 20 years or so. It's interesting. Just reading Harry McGee today, he's writing from um, from Lifford and Donegal about you know the, the problems which Donegal has with COVID because effectively the border does not exist in any real way for the people who live in Lifford and Straban. It's all part of the one conurbation. And we see that all along the border in terms of the relationships. One could argue that the, you know, the border never reflected reality anyway. But our joint membership of the EU has accelerated that process of making it completely invisible and irrelevant. And isn't that what Michal Martin is looking to focus on, is to move to the next stage of that? So as Mick says, it's, it's possible to have a lot more connections across the island, much more united Ireland, I suppose, before that ever becomes a constitutional issue. I think he's trying to do two things with um, with the initiative. One is exactly, as you say, to create a much broader and deeper cooperation between the two states, the two polities, but also between, uh, you know, broader, but, but also to create broader social and economic and educational links between the two jurisdictions. And uh, I, I mean, I spoke to him in a fairly lengthy interview about all this back during the summer, and he was completely focused on practical matters like infrastructure and uh, and joint educational initiatives and so uh, and so forth. But and I think he sees a value in that. Um, and uh, and it's very much one of the central goals of his period as Taoiseach, which will be a short one, let us remember, at least in its initial incarnation, uh, and, and I think probably beyond that. Um, so I, I, I think he will push that and he provided uh, in the budget 500 million over five years, which is a serious chunk of change to, uh, to be ring-fenced for, uh, for these projects. 500 million, 500 million buys you a fair bit of infrastructure, particularly when you're talking, uh, you know, relatively small bore stuff like, uh, you know, roads and bridges and cycleways and, uh, and, and train services and, uh, and, and, and so forth. But I, I think his purpose in it goes beyond the merely practical. I think there's a political aspect to it as well. And I think it is intended to be an answer to the Sinn Féin push for a border poll for a united uh, Ireland, which is a central part of Sinn Féin's political messaging and appeal, especially to younger voters in the South. If you look at their general election campaign, uh, in in uh, in February, it was centred around two great themes. One was its left wing economic platform, and uh, and, and that is promoted as we have seen since using what Ono Brin, uh, their TD, has called uh, uh, the tactic of left populism to promote uh, to promote Sinn Fein's economic uh, policies. Uh, in, in that regard, but also the Sinn Féin uh, electoral appeal is based around the uh, push for a united Ireland. And that will be, if we, uh, I think that will remain important. The question will remain important in Irish politics over the next four or five years because it is important to Sinn Féin, because it is so central to Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin is now a central player in uh, in Irish politics. So I think that uh, what Micheál Martin uh, is doing is also with one eye on that. Just one further point, I think, um, to make about the, the the referendums north south. I, I mean, Mick is right when he says, you know, that the, 
you know, the cru- crucial referendum is in the north in that if that if there's a no vote in that, there won't be any referendum in uh, in the south. But once that takes place and assuming that there is an affirmative uh, answer in that, then I, I don't think it is... Now, we've plenty of research on this, but it's, I think, shallow enough research. And I think one of the things that, you know, will be needed over the next period of time is quite in-depth public opinion research uh, on this that goes beyond a question in a media poll, would you would you like to see United Ireland or, uh, or, or not? But I, I think there is, I think the winning of uh, a referendum in the South for the pro-unity side um, is not at all a foregone conclusion. And if you think of the sort of constitutional and political mess that we would be in if you had a referendum approved in the North and rejected uh, in the South, I think that is something that there will have to be a good deal of thought and preparation for over the over the coming years. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit unclear actually on the you know the constitutional narrative that should happen if if the picture Pat paints you know which isn't beyond the bounds of of possibility, particularly if as he says you know there are all kinds of thorny things relating both to the financing of 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 Northern Ireland and also symbolic things which are very important to some people you know the flag the anthem the place of the Irish language all those kinds of issues that you could mount quite a strong campaign what happens if Northern Ireland wants to join us but we don't want to join them <laughs> god forbid um i'm going to answer that well I'll answer that first i was going to go backwards because there's some other points but it it would become um a disputed territory you know if that if that was legally the final result. So it would be, as Pat said, um, messy is, is not the word. <laughs> it's an understatement. Um, so I think that emphasises, again, the need for planning and between the governments, between British and Irish governments as well, um, about coordinating this. And also it emphasises the time period involved, that this is something which cannot be rushed if it is to occur, if there, you know, even if there is evidence building uh, that the Secretary of State thinks um, there could be a referendum. It really is something that has to be cautiously done because of that, because it would be a mess. I mean, it would be absolutely a, a legal mess. Um, I think linked to that in terms of planning and Micheál Martin, and I really enjoyed Pat's Shared Island series in the Irish Times. I just, um, just it was really useful to me and um, his interview with Micheál Martin as well. But I think, um, and I keep going on about it, but I think Micheál Martin also was emphasising the identity issue in his speech launching that report. So these issues, I think these issues, and it's in the report we mention it, around symbols and around the subvention, of course, are hugely important. You know, and we saw that in Germany with unification about taking on a big tax hike. You know, are Irish people willing to take on board that sort of cost, um, even if there are benefits, which the SRI has said there are to unification you know, others may not agree and, and uh, John Fitzgerald has put forward a counter-argument to that. So I think that's one issue. But also the, these things we take for granted or Irish people take for granted. So the anthem, the flag and all these issues uh, we mentioned in the report would also need preparation about. And my feeling is that um, Micheál Martin in his speech was mentioning that in terms of shared dialogue that we reflect, he said, on our identity as well. Um, so I think that's a factor that's necessary in planning, in attitudes to Britishness and British symbols and to our own symbols. Indeed. Um, Mick, we, 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 can't, we can't ignore the fact that this is not like 
the Scottish independence referendum or not like the Irish divorce referendum in one very important respect, because this question has been the subject of long-term terrible violence uh, and divisions um, on the streets and on the roads of, of Northern Ireland for for generations. Um, and fortunately, things there are much better than they used to be. But there is often a fear, and I think it was expressed uh, at some points in the Shared Island series to which to which Pat contributed, that the destabilising effect of a sovereignty referendum could bring us, drag us back into that, or that you might have some form of a attempt at a resurgence of paramilitarism, or even a retrenchment of unionism in a smaller part of the northeastern part of the island. Yeah, that is talked about, and sometimes I wonder about the motives of people who uh, push that line aggressively. I think, you know, Etan's talked about if we get to that situation, Northern Ireland would be, a, you know, a failed. It would be a failed entity. But I think it would also speak to a massive political failure on the part of the judgment of the Secretary of State if they launch Northern Ireland into the situation in the first place. I think we have to recognise, as well as recognise the failures of the Good Friday Agreement, we have to recognise some of the substantive um, successes of that agreement. Because if you don't look at the successes and build on solid ground, then you're really looking at just sticking a house on, 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 a, on a sand pit, which eventually will just disappear. So and I think that's really important. And it's not just the Good Friday Agreement. We look back to the um, Garrett Fitzgerald and the Anglo-Irish Agreement. I think we look back to the various attempts within Northern Ireland to try and get the house steady. And I, I really point back to the 1975 um, acts brought in by the UK Labour government back then that brought in... Uh, economic justice that brought in anti-discrimination legislation and gave it teeth. The truth is, when I was growing up, when I entered the labour market in 1979, I remember looking around the office in the electricity board that I joined at the time and figuring out there was only about three or four of us who were Catholics. But of the intake that came in, of five of us, I think um, three of us were Catholic and that was a direct result of that legislation biting. And the people I'm now getting towards the end of my working life, and many of the people who joined at that same time, for now find themselves, those who were patient enough to, to stay within the structure, now find themselves at senior levels within uh, the semi-state bodies, with you know many of the permanent secretaries at the top of the, uh, the civil service now are people of a similar background to myself. Media in the North is now dominated by people, again, of my own Irish Catholic nationalist background. Irish speakers, Kevin McGee often does stuff in politics, but he also does it in the Irish language. So many of the things that were wrong with the Northern Ireland state prior that made many of us feel very dissatisfied, if not pushing us towards the violence of the provisional IRA, certainly very dissatisfied with the place we find ourselves in. Many of those things have gone, and with it has gone the urge towards violent retribution. Along with that, if you talk to people like, um, and he's just brought a book out. Billy Hutchinson. Yeah, but, you know, Billy was asked a question straight away and he he gave a very straight, intuitive answer. No. If the referendum comes and the decision is made, and some of that is the fact that we've got to a place where equality is a real thing, properly enforced, and some of it is just to do with the tiredness of his generation, and to be fair, the generation represented by people like um, Jerry Adams, 
They're tired. They, they had 20 years of going at this thing, longer than any other conflict in modern Irish history. And they've tried that route and it simply doesn't work. So I think we have to be confident. We have to look at the strengths of the arguments. From a Republican point of view, the strengths of the arguments of bringing the two places together, but also realistic about how long that's going to take, what preparatory work needs to be done. You know, we say this stuff is easy, but the train service from Belfast uh, to Dublin is exactly the same travel time as I was uh, experiencing back in my 20s when I was young. <laughs> and it's taken a long time to get to this point, even with 20 years of peace, to contemplate spending some money on our ambitions and on our dreams. I should say, by the way, I'll be delighted to see the Belfast Enterprise train taken out of my suburban dart station so I can get it in the town quicker, quicker as well. So everybody benefits, I think, from, from, from these kinds of, kinds of projects. Then I want to give you kind of a, a last word on, on this. Um, Pat mentions the fact that Sinn, it's Sinn Féin that's driving the, the, the desire for a referendum sooner rather than later. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility at all that Sinn Féin will be in government both north and south within the next uh, within the next three or four years. Um, do you think there's a possibility that this whole process might be accelerated, uh, no matter the fact that the, the report doesn't see it in the immediate future? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, um, the premise for this report, part of it was that, as we have seen in different parts of the world, events can take over. So whether that's Sinn Féin or whether it's something else, um, whether Scottish independence would accelerate and, and cause a drive generally, we just don't know. So I think it is feasible, um, well, possible um, because of that, which is precisely why this report has been written. I think, I mean, I, I feel others will know more in a way. And Pat, I think, has written in the Irish Times a lot about Sinn Féin. You know, I don't think any party would want the criteria we have listed that are essential for stability, really, not not to be adhered to. Um, you know, so, and, and Sinn Féin is part of the democratic system and, and is operating, you know, in opposition now. So I can't predict what they would do. But I would, my general feeling is that these criteria we've laid out are really common sense. It's an academic project. But at the same time, Northern Irish people, perhaps more than others, would be aware of the, the, the horror of instability and lack of reconciliation. So that's just my general viewpoint. But the premise, as I said, that motivated the team, Alan Renwick and others, to do this is after Brexit, who knows what can happen. So at least we need to have plans in case. And one very, very last question to you then, Pat, on this. You know, if Sinn Féin were to be in power and it's driving it, it's absolutely at the top of its policy agenda, it'll be driving for a referendum at a point which, um, to go by all the research, the surveys and the polls, it's a very, very moot point as to whether Northern Ireland would vote for a united Ireland. My personal view is that I think it's quite unlikely in that in, in that time span over the next while. There's all kinds of questions of dem demographic change that we don't have time to get into here. But even listening to Mick there talking about the change to Northern Ireland from the one he grew up in to the one that's there now that will have an impact on the way people think about having a drastic change to their to their lives so my question is is Sinn Féin's strategy to have a referendum but not necessarily in the expectation that it would win a first referendum perhaps similar to the strategy of the SNP in Scotland I think there's no underestimating Sinn Féin's commitment to this and I think that if they found themselves in government in the south I think it would be the first order priority. I think it would temper the left-wing economic policies that they might pursue in or they might wish to pursue 
in government here in order to give due priority to the Unity project. But they're not stupid. They know that it is a long-term project. They know there isn't going to be a referendum before 2025. And I think what you would see if Sinn Féin were in government in, uh, in North and South is... I think you would see them try to cooperate cooperate between the two jurisdictions on the island. So you would have probably weekly or, or, or bi-weekly meetings of Sinn Féin ministers to advance the unity project in very practical, uh, uh, practical sort of ways. Ultimately, the securing of uh, the securing of, and I think you know that would probably provoke a reaction uh, amongst uh, amongst unionists. Ultimately, as we know, it's a legal and constitutional fact that the calling of the referendum uh, in the north is a matter for the British Secretary of State, who must be convinced that there is a reasonable chance that it will pass, and that will take not just a political transformation in uh, a political transformation in Northern Ireland from the circumstances which we see there now, but perhaps more importantly, a, a political transformation in London. Now, that is that is entirely possible. You know, within five years, we could see the breakup of the United Kingdom. And I think the aftershocks of that would have profound consequences for uh, for the Irish question. But, you know, to, 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 an, to answer your question, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, I don't think that Sinn Féin will dive into this. I think that they will approach this inside or outside government with the same uh the same sort of qualities and uh the same rationale the same modus operandi that they have approached everything for the last number of years and that is a slow and strategic and patient uh, approach so i think really in their heart of hearts they know that this is a 10 stroke 20 stroke 25 year project rather than a 5 year one Right, we shall leave it there. You can read Etain's article with Paul Gillespie in today's Irish Times and there's a link in that article to the full report as well. Thanks to Etain, thanks to Pat and thanks also to Mick for joining us, also to our producer Declan Conlon. If you want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. You can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.